listeners. Welcome to the 124th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. We have a fun little treat planned for y'all today. Um, as always, I have Brian out there with me. Brian, how are you doing today? Hi, Dan. Glad to be here again. 125 isn't too far away. Is that... No, that's not 15 squared. That's not a square, is it? I don't think so. Is it five cubed? Yes, it is five cubed. 25 times five. There you go. That's probably what you're thinking of. Could be. And then we also have, for the third time, my brother Will, phoning in from Japan, bringing us some Asian cinema. Will, how you doing? Hey, Dan. How's Japan? Uh, It's good. How do you say Japan in Japan? You say Nihon. Nihon? Yeah, Nihon. N-I-H-O-N. Yeah, I'm a master of anime. (laughs) Unless you're feeling particularly old school or nationalistic, in which case they say Nippon. Also, this is my fourth time, not my third. They're really getting up there. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Wow. Tokyo Drifter, In the Mood for Love, They Live, and now number four. So it's the third time you're bringing us Asian cinema, but the fourth time you've appeared on the pod. Exactly. Yes. And interesting note about the number four in Japanese and I think also Chinese. It is a yeah, it's a homophone for death. So hmm. they don't have fourth floors on a lot of buildings yep. like we don't have 13th. Yep. Exactly well, you, right. You picked four films for us to watch. So I'm going exactly. to take that as a message that you wish for me to die. Yeah, I'm going to say, uh. Say your prayers tonight, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Watch your back. Yeah. The goods. So you picked four films, and they are four Japanese animated films. So I think we would say four anime films. All of them come from the time period of 2008 through 2016. So they are all more recent than our one other anime outing, which is when me and Brian watched Anne of Green Gables. And two of them are shorts, two of them are features. And this is the order in which we are going to discuss them because it's the order that I watched them and it's the order that Will said we should discuss them. And that is the 2013 short entitled Kick Heart, the 2016 feature entitled A Silent Voice, the 2008 short entitled The House of Small Cubes. And lastly, the 2009 feature Redline. So before we dive in, Will, tell us, why did you pick this theme of anime and the the mid-2000s through the mid-2010s? And... Anything in particular unifying these these four films? Um, so as for the reason I picked this topic, I remember when you guys had your Anna Month and when the uh, anime uh, episode came up, I was struck by uh, how little anime both of you seem to uh, have experience with. I know both of you mentioned some fondness for Studio Ghibli movies and Brian has, I think, mentioned Death Note before, perhaps. Yes, so I wanted to kind of do another gauge set of just who's seen what. So at least it sounds like, well, it's fresh in your mind what we have and haven't 
uh, watched. I haven't watched too much since then. I've actually seen Redline before. I watched it with a group of friends who also introduced me to the movie Paprika, which is a crazy one. Yeah, interestingly, Paprika. It was I was kind of choosing between Paprika and Redline because I know um, oh, what's the director's name? Satoshi Kon. He was the director. I think Paprika was his last feature. So, and I know Dan. I think has at least expressed some interest in. I'm not sure about Paprika, but what's that movie called? The other one, something blue. Perfect blue. Perfect blue. Yeah, I think he. Uh, you've expressed some interest in that movie before. So I was thinking about picking either that um, Paprika as the other film besides um, a Silent Voice, but um, yeah. Anyway, so my most of my time watching anime was through high school and college, which is basically 2008 to 2017. So it kind of works out that it uh, matches up this, the time frame of the the movies that I picked. And I have a, a couple of specific reasons for each of them, but yeah, um, it's more like this is the era of anime that I'm familiar with. And when I was thinking of stuff that I wanted to watch or I thought might be good to talk about, it just kind of happened to all come from this time period. Cool. I was thinking about that. It's like, Many of the movies that I feel most strongly about, like my top 100 films, it's weighted towards me being 18 through, not even 18, me being 16 through being 23 or so. It's like, I don't know, It's that's when it's formative on you. That's also when you have the free time to watch more of it. So I think there's something to that. It's almost your first kind of like grown up fondness because it, like if, if i look back on stuff when i was a kid it was a very different mindset when i was 16 or 17 i feel like i was mostly the same person that i am now and so it was the first sort of uh definitive or uh defining experiences when when i had my more central taste already formed see i don't feel like i am like i was at 16 at all i feel like i'm a totally different person i bet you you have a lot more character overlap even if you're a lot more nuanced and adult there's probably I think a lot of your tastes, at least, have somewhat of an overlap. Yeah, but I think my personality has shifted a lot. It's like, I, I don't think Myers-Briggs is the end-all, be-all, but I think probably two, if not three, of my letters on Myers-Briggs have shifted since I was <laughs> 16. One of mine certainly has. I just completely lied on my Myers-Briggs. I thought it was a test where... The extrovert answers are the right answers to give. And if you give the introvert answers, they're going to stick you in a room somewhere and psychoanalyze you. So don't put those. Oh, um, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about this. Well, not about Myers-Briggs, but about the sort of uh, millennial adjacent Myers-Briggs, which, of course, is the uh, Harry Potter house sorting. And he said when he first did the Pottermore thing, he just lied. So he would get Gryffindor. But then he did it 10 years later or whatever and got uh, Hufflepuff. And he thought that was a more accurate representation of his personality. My brother came up with the Starburst personality test, which is ranking the four default flavors. So cherry, strawberry, orange, lemon, and put those in an order. And that's a meaningful personality type. I'm immediately gravitated to pink, red, orange, yellow. But that's, that would be my power ranking of Starburst flavors. Yeah, I would do red, pink, orange, yellow, I think. Nice. I'm different from most people because I like pretty much anything lemon flavored. So I might actually have yellow first, pink, orange, red. Yellow and pink are neck and neck for me for number one. But definitely orange and red, third and fourth. Wow, cherry dead last. 
That's Dan's a, built different. That's a rare one. Red is so popular that they made the Starburst favorite, like the favorite red, whatever it was. It was just the different series of red colored Starbursts in one bag. Yeah, from the different flavors. Have you yeah. seen that one, Brian? No, it, it's just a pack that's all different reds or what? Yeah, you know how they have like the main Starburst line and then there's like the tropical one and the wild berry one or that might be Skittles. I don't know, but... Yeah, no, it's similar. I mean, I've seen the berry ones. I remember at one point I got a plum one. So anyways, all of them have a red because there's so many red flavors out there. Brian and I were talking about flavors and colors for like a half hour the other day. Well, it's, I was going to say it goes with Power Rangers as well, where the red one is always like the leader or the most popular. Something about the color red. Oh, yeah, that's true. But anyways, since they all have a red and in general, the red ones are well loved. They're like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do a red power pack. So it's all reds, but like mix and match from different sets. So you're getting all reds, but here's the tropical red. Here's the wildberry red. Here's the normal red. Wow. I'm learning things today. Yeah, you got to go find that one, Brian. You got to eat a pack of those while you watch the uh, like Red Ranger reunion special that had all the Red Rangers. It came out in 2011, 2012. It's called Forever Red. And I think they fought General, what was his name? General Zed or whatever, the, the bad guy. They fought him on the moon, I think. That's, I have vague recollections of watching that when I was uh, younger. Nice. I've I've just seen like some gifts from it of the 23 Red Rangers or whatever all lined up. I think that scene happens in Red Line too, so. More or less. And then uh, there's one. Oh, yeah, there was another Power Rangers special that came out this year. Reunion some sort. But it's like, actually, it's not just a reunion, but it's like it brings back a bunch of actors. Apparently, I don't I didn't watch it. Amy Jo Johnson is going to be at Awesome Con, Dan. Are you guys going that way? Is, is Awesome Con a destination that you guys are going to? I don't even know what Awesome Con is. I'll probably go this year. Yeah, it's the it's just the DC con that they do at the um big convention center and yeah, uh 2 years ago already I took Dan and we got our picture with Adam from no, Jamie from Mythbusters. No, Amy, Adam. Adam the with the goatee, not the walrus mustache. Um from Mythbusters and Christopher Lloyd. Ah. Doc Brown, right? Doc Brown? Yeah. Interesting. Does he? He looks exactly the same as he did in what 1985 when that movie came out, right? Well, he kind of looked like a wizard. He had a big crazy <laughs> beard, and he didn't really do much. He sat far away from us on a stool and didn't really show any emotion. Yeah, it was a cruel light into what these celebrity encounters that you always see people posting on social media are actually like. I mean, this was probably among the like more conveyor belt type ones but you literally stepped into a room they took a picture they called you out of the room and like he didn't even acknowledge our existence but we have a nice picture of us with christopher lloyd and a delorean so for the rest of time we can pretend that we had this meaningful interaction with christopher lloyd your buddies with doc brown himself more or less <laughs> basically and then before we dive in i guess uh since we're already off on out in tangent land I'll share one other tangent, if Will doesn't mind me sharing, which is that you're moving back to the US of A this summer. Indeed, I am. Yeah. In uh, my contract expires very end of July, early uh, August, essentially summer vacation for the folks out here. And yes, I will be back uh, homeward bound. And who knows what the next adventure will entail for uh, 
will. But yeah, we'll see. There you go. Do you think you'll still put your Japanese to use? You're going to go work for the State Department or something? I know. So a lot of people who do the uh, program that I do. Uh, well, not a lot of people. There are. I've met a handful of people who went and worked at the uh, Japanese embassy afterwards. And obviously that's fairly local to where we're from. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'll put it to use in some ways. I don't intend to stop listening to Japanese music or, uh, you know, doing whatever I do with that. But I don't know if it will be a... Uh, facet of my professional life or not it's yet to be determined i'm kind of a, a procrastinator in that sense and that i am have put off a lot of planning that i probably should not be considering uh i have what three months left that's plenty of time right what was the meme you sent us it was an onion article it was something like sad lonely man gets called the crazy uncle or something like that <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was my future is like uh yeah sad lonely man gets called crazy uncle at family reunions or whatever it is <laughs> yeah was that in the style cup brother slack yeah the brothers chat all right well we should discuss the matters at hand and the matters at hand are some anime movies and the first film that we're going to discuss is called kick heart and when i say it's called it's the what it's called on Letterbox, basically, and how Will typed it to me. So I think they all have Japanese names. And, and one of them even had like a title card that was a different translation. I think it was a silent voice had a different title card. Yeah, I, I, I'll explain that when it comes up, but I intend to. Yeah, this one, if you want to read it in Japanese, it's Kikuhato. So it's literally the <laughs> katakana version of Kick Heart. So, yeah, it's like a house. It's Jack <laughs> in the Box. Yes, yeah, Jack in the Box are... I did catch up with that, by the way, but I, we've already been on enough uh, tangents. <laughs> and so Kick Heart is a short film from 2013 directed by Masaki Yuasa. So I've never seen anything by this director before. Um, I did read a little bit about him, and he seems to be uh, fairly well regarded. Yeah, so Masaki Yuasa is my favorite director, which is the main reason I picked this one. And actually, I'm fairly confident at least Brian has seen something directed by this guy. And uh, he directed the Food Chain episode of Adventure Time. So if you've watched all of Adventure Time, he was the uh, guest director for that episode. Okay, then I saw that at some point along the way. I did binge all of Adventure Time not too long ago. Yeah, he also, he directed my favorite anime of all time, which is called the Tatami Galaxy, which if when we were talking about like sort of your tastes, uh, the stuff that emotionally resonates from you most uh, from when you're about 16 to 23, that's probably number one there because it's about I watched it my first year of college and it's about like a time loop where a guy's in college over and over again and he uh, basically goes through different clubs. He's not aware he's in a time loop, but he's like cursed to keep reliving college until he's satisfied with his life. And it's very, uh, it, it, it hit me at a particular good time about like uh you know making the most out of your uh college experience and life in general and but yeah he's he's directed a couple of movies that i quite like called one called mind game which is very surreal um and one that gavin in the discord shouted out is one is i it might have been one of his favorite animated movies or just one of his favorite movies from last year called inu ol which uh was a, a movie that came out last year but yeah i want to see that one i didn't know that was him that's cool he also did uh, Devil May and Cry Baby, which was kind of a big thing on Netflix. Big adaptation of a famous old manga. 
and Ping Pong the Animation, another pretty famous one anyway. But he's, yeah, probably my favorite anime director. Okay, so he's prolific, and he's done both TV and movies. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is a wrestling-themed short, and it follows this wrestler. We learn... Well, I'll say I watched all of them except Redline. I watched the sub and not the dub. So Redline, the copy I came across was dubbed, and I started watching it today. So I was like, I'm not going to go out of my way to find another one. I'll just deal with the dub today. I was going to try to watch the subs to get the most authentic experience, but I did it for all of them except Redline. So this is kind of what I got from the subs. So I don't know if, how this conveyed in either the dub or if you actually know Japanese, but it described this main wrestler as Masked Man M. And it, it opens with this, this fight. It's Masked Man M, and then he's got a partner and they're fighting against two women wrestlers and they're professional wrestlers. So they're like kind of supposed to be doing towards a script. You get the sense there's like a, a boss telling him what to do sort of. And just out of the gate, this is just a wild short. It's just out of control, absurd, baroque body horror, wacky stuff. He's getting absorbed into this big fat woman's flesh. Lots of sexual imagery going on, but it's in this beautiful like watercolor pencil sketch style that's just really tremendously artful in spite of the outright silliness of, of what we're watching. And yeah, I mean, this this is a uh, short has basically fight a little bit of plot and then another fight. So you just kind of get a lot of this motion and this this uh, expressiveness of the um, animation. But Brian, what were you thinking as we watch this? I felt like we were back in undisputed land. <laughs> but this is even more surreal and heightened than the crazy stuff we got in, in undisputed. But yeah, there's like more face stamping in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say this is pretty indicative of his like typical animation style. That's very sort of almost dreamlike and over the top and almost sketchy. But yeah, you said like almost like watercolor. That's uh, it. It's not a very what you would consider to be a conventional like anime style, but uh, it, it, I think it is very expressive. And again, the, the plot of this one is pretty uh, out there. I, I don't know. I don't want to get it. Well, did you guys you presumably you caught all of the BDSM stuff because their names are Mast M and Lady S, which is a Japanese thing where uh, they literally will talk about if you are an S or an M. Which basically means, are you dominant or submissive? But yeah, it's it's it's, it's like a BDSM thing. Gotcha. Interesting. I'm I didn't put that together that those were their names, but he is at like a kiosk buying bondage magazines. Yeah, and he also overtly enjoys getting uh, slapped around by Lady S. And I mean, you know, pro wrestling is like inherently uh, homoerotic, I guess, but like in this case, just erotic because it's a man and a woman. And so like when you're grappling and like plunging back and forth, it's got, it's got sex stuff built into it. So, and this definitely plays that up. I, I 100%. So yeah, lady S is the competitor and it looks like, I think lady S is supposed to win, but Masked man M prevails and the boss is mad, but then we follow the, the wrestler in his day-to-day -day life and we both see his his lighter side and his weirder side. So his name is Romeo Maki, I think. And he goes to a 
Well, first he goes to, yeah, Brian was saying like a, a porno shop. I guess it's not a shop. It's like a vending machine. It's like a little newsstand thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a magazine vending machine. And then he goes, it's funny because he goes straight from there to an orphanage to help out these kids. And so he uses like his winnings and his his prestige to help out this one orphanage to help with the kids. That also had me thinking of Undisputed Four. Mm. Oh, good call. Where Boyka is helping the orphanage. Yeah. I didn't even put that together, but you're right. And he's like sweet on the lady at the orphanage. and Right. It's this... Uh, this woman named Sister Juliet. And there's, you know, a series of shenanigans. He walk, She walks in on him when he's in the toilet and they accidentally pass the porno mag around to the kids and all this kind of goofy stuff. And yeah, so eventually he has to go back to the wrestling match again. And he is matched up against Lady S again. So it's going to be the same, the same matchup as last night, except this time it's one-on-one. And we get another fight that's just very f- over the top and fluidly animated and uh, very much sensual in some ways, but like not in a really kind of erotic way, but just like charged, I guess. I don't know really how to describe it, but it's it's got it's got an energy to it. And again, I was impressed with the how well it's done, uh, quite honestly, in spite of, like I said, in spite of the the weirdness of the plot. But and I guess how limited the plot is and how it's basically just a extended goof on man pro wrestling sure is tapping into some weird impulses in the human psyche. But then of course this time lady S wins. Um, and just at the end, mask man M realizes, wait a second, lady S is sister Juliet and she's helping out the orphanage with her winnings too. So I guess a happy ending. I don't know. Yeah. So we'll, what are, what are you thinking as you watch this? Is this one that you love? Is it just like a, a weird little uh, trifle? So I didn't know anything about what I was. So when I was choosing stuff for this, I wanted to try and get something by this director because he was my, he, like I said, he's my favorite director. Um, so I was kind of looking over and I saw that he uh, had made this short and that it, I think it was the first crowdfunded anime short or like anime ever, I think. So uh, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I, I had no idea when I turned it on. I watched it. I was like, okay, um, this is kind of weird. But you can read a lot into like some of the uh, symbolism is, is, is goofy, I think. But yeah, in general, I think it's a pretty good example of his animation style. And also, a lo- he is very, it's almost like, shameless is the wrong word. It's very intimate. He, he portrays a lot of like, what so I think I think what people would consider to be uh, like embarrassing or like, uh yeah maybe intimate very uh candidly which is one of the reasons i like him it's a lot of like i'll talk about like uh sort of sexual urges you know stuff like that anyway i don't i don't know how to uh verbalize it very well but yeah and i think this is indicative of that although unfortunately well not unfortunately but this one it just happened to be about bdsm which is not a topic i am too uh connected with so it didn't hit me quite as much as the uh one about the time loop in college, but I, I still found the uh, visual striking, and uh, I like the uh, the title card and everything like that, and uh, yeah, pretty good demonstration of his style in a 12-minute package. Anything you want to add on to this one, Brian? Do you have any insight into what the title means? Kick Heart? Um, at the beginning, I don't know why Kick, but if you remember at the beginning of the, when he gets slapped really hard in the chest by Lady S, you get his heart like... Uh, 
coming out and having an imprint on him. So it might have just been a reference to that. Yeah, I guess it's a kick in the heart when he uh, gets uh, slapped around in the ring by Lady S. I don't know. That's the best uh, thing I can come up with on the spot. Cool. Well, that, this was certainly a way to, to start my mini anime binge. So it was an interesting choice. Um, and we would mellow out for the second one. So I'm thinking, do we want to wait to do all of our ratings at the end or do we want to do them piece by piece? Any thoughts? I'm good either way. Right. Yeah, I don't care. Let's, let's do them at the end. So as long as you guys already have them penciled in. A Silent Voice from 2016 was the second thing we watched. This is a feature length film. This is directed by Naoko Yamada. I don't know how you say that. Will, why did you pick this one for us? Um, so this was the only one I had seen before uh, picking, like the setting up everything. I watched it once, half asleep at my friend's house at 2 a.m. like four or five years ago. Um, and I really liked it the last time I watched it. I was really struck by it. And when I picked Redline as the first movie, I was like, well, let's do something almost completely different. Let's like have some, uh, I, if I was going to subtitle this episode, it would be something like emotional whiplash, where we're kind of going back and forth between very bombastic and very understated uh, emotions here, very realistic versus the sort of uh, over-the-top shenanigans of Kit Kart and uh, Redline. Um, but yeah, so I, this was probably my favorite movie that I saw that year, which was, I think I saw it in 2017. It was a 2016 film. And, um, yeah, the animation studio, Kyoto Animation, they have, they're like pretty, I would say they're kind of prestige for television anime and more recently have done a couple of movies. Um, and this is one of them, I think one of the more critically acclaimed ones, or at least, uh, it's very popular among like anime fans. And yeah, I just, uh, there's a lot of things I really admire about it and I think are interesting. So I thought it would be a good point of discussion. Plus, an interesting insight into Japanese culture, I think, if you don't have any experience with that. There's a lot of things in here that I think are interesting to talk about. Cool, yeah. So I'd heard of this one, but did not know too much about it. As we'll see, it's basically a teen drama. So you also said at one point in the chat, Will, that you wanted a Dan movie and a Brian movie among the features. And since this is a teen drama, this was the Dan movie. This is the Dan movie, yes. Yeah. So I watched him in a different order, but even by the end of the quote unquote Brian movie, which I watched first, I was like, I wonder if there's something like that going into the thought process here. Cause, uh, yeah, I, I did notice, but, <laughs> um, we'll, well, we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah. So this movie follows a character named Shoya Ishida or just Shoya. Well, mm -hmm. okay. I think just show you. I, I, one thing that threw me off in general, but in particular in this movie, is the first name, last name thing. Right. So sometimes they call each other by the first name and sometimes they call each other by the last name. But even the notion of first name and last name, it's like opposite from what we do because you do it in different order. You say the last name first and then the first name or something. I don't know exactly. Yeah, the family name is first. But I think in the, in the sub, they, they unflipped it. So I was confused. So Shoya is actually his first name. The first name. Yeah. Ishida is the last name. Ishida is his surname, yes. Um in in Japan, the I would say generally it's kind of intimate to refer to someone by their first name, which is uh especially if they're an adult or like like if so for example, at my school I call most of my teachers by their last name, but there's two 
there's a couple of overlaps for last names, in which case I call them by their first name. But yeah, generally speaking, um, yeah, Ishida Shoya is how you would say his name in Japanese. But if he was an American, you would say Shoya Ishida because Ishida is his yeah. surname. It's interesting if you um, read about directors a lot and you go on Wikipedia, they, one thing they do is they say they write it out as it's typically done in American and then they have in parentheses, I forget the exact wording they use, but they tell you how you should refer to his last name. So like, who's the guy who did... Uh, Parasite? Uh, Bong Parasite. Joon-ho? Yeah, Bong oh, yeah. But you call him Bong if you're just referring to him. I don't know. I think, I feel like for Korean, one of those names is a generation marker. I'm not nearly as familiar with uh, Korean names because I haven't lived there for six years. Since we're just kind of meandering a little bit, uh, I wanted to say two other anime things I have watched. Uh, just recently, I watched the Junji Ito horror miniseries on Netflix. I was big into that. Uh, actually, there was an episode about bullying at an elementary school, so that's what I was thinking of. Perfect. How topical. But then also, not recently, I've watched a Korean show that was, for all intents and purposes, as far as I'm concerned, an anime uh, about the Ragnarok MMORPG. Uh, nice. Ragnarok Online. Yeah, I had a couple friends who played that back in like uh, high school, middle school. But anyways, this this uh, film opens with Shoya Ishida in elementary school, and he gets a new classmate, this girl named Shoko Nishiyama. So we have Shoya and Shoko, which I was thinking of Brian. I was like, it's too close. You got you're gonna have <laughs> protagonists. You gotta have more different names. It's it's a uh, yeah, it's like Sauron and Saruman. I was like, oh no. That was the example that I was used to. <laughs> and and because they me. start referring to themselves as like, and their friends are calling them show. Yeah, it's like, like oh. oh, it's show and show. <laughs> like, no, no. And also, like, people have a bunch of friends in this. And then for a while they don't. But then they, like, start to rebuild it again. And it's like, there's a lot of names to keep track yeah. of. You got Nauka and, like, Umyo. Yeah, that was... It was a beat when she's introduced. They're like, oh, you go by Shochan. That's like, like the, they have the same name because it's Shoya and Shoko. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, does not make it any less confusing, even if there is, uh, it is acknowledged in the story. But yeah, I get that. Gotcha. Yeah. It's like uh, when Taylor Swift dated Taylor Lautner. <laughs> Tay-Tay. Um, but yeah, so new... New ki- new girl in class, and she's deaf. And despite, or because they're in elementary school, because of perhaps this prepubescent attraction that that Shoya has for Shoko, he kind of is fascinated with her. But he ends up picking on her a lot, and kind of leading a group of kids bullying her. Pretty nasty about it. It's like mean stuff, like tugging at her hearing aids and throwing her notebook that she uses to write to people in the fountain and stuff. And really not a great way to, to meet this, this character here. Well, I think you glossed over before the flashback, which is we get like a brief one, two minute scene of him kind of living his life. And he has, he pulls out his calendar where he's torn off the second half of the month. And you see him selling all of his possessions, quitting his job and collecting money. And then there's a scene where he is basically at a bridge and uh, thinking of, 
he's function or he's basically imagining jumping off the bridge and then it flashes back to uh when he was a kid so we have a little bit of context where he's like uh suicidal in quote-unquote present time uh before the flashback so it uh it uh adds an element of int- i don't know if intrigue is the right word but like uh uh, introspection about the uh, flashback there. But eventually they get caught bullying her because the the hearing aids, like the uh, Shoko's mob notices the hearing aids have gone missing and they're expensive. And the way that it plays out is Shoya gets all the blame for picking on Shoko. And so he becomes like, oh, he was the bully. And that kind of becomes his, as happens in elementary school to some extent, he becomes the bully in class and everybody kind of treats him as the cruel weirdo guy. Although I have to say, I kind of think this, well, I have a kindergartner, so this is a couple years after kindergarten, but like elementary schoolers aren't good, that good at remembering stuff. Like they, they're very mutable and, and uh, the groups form and unform. It's like, this wouldn't be like one thing happened that defines the rest of your life. That didn't really ring as something that would actually happen in elementary school. So I, I have a couple of things. First of all, they are sixth grade elementary schools, which would be the equivalent of first year of middle school in America. So they're, okay. So, okay. So they're 11, they're 11 or 12 years old, a little bit older. Um, huh, I thought they were a little younger than that, but okay. yeah, they're 11 or 12. Um, yeah, I watched the dub. It said sixth grade a few times. Yeah. And also um, one thing I want to say is that I hate the teacher in this so much he's so useless it's actually i read the manga that's associated with this it's like seven volumes 40 something chapters something like that but um and he's even worse in the manga but there's this attitude in japan about kind of bullying in general and like uh you ever heard you ever go to a basketball game and the refs are being too like they're calling too many things and you hear some uh guy in the crowd yell let the kids play it's like that but it's like let the kids torment each other it's like they very much it's like oh interesting there's this kind of understanding that adults shouldn't get involved in kids' stuff if if they don't have to. So it's it's a lot of like sort of hands off, they can handle it themselves type of deal. So you end up with this. He's obviously aware of what's going on. And then the other thing is it's it's weird because Ishida definitely has what's coming to him, but I also hate all of the other kids in the class because they were clearly going along with it. The one girl who starts to cry when. Uh, He's like, hold on, you were making fun of her too. And she's like, I would never do that. And she starts to cry. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's the one pigtails girl, and I think she's the one who cries, and she didn't seem to really be doing anything bad to me. So to rope her into it, I did think was a little unjustified. But yeah, everybody else was doing stuff. She was at least giggling along with uh, the black-haired girl, because she was friends with the black-haired girl uh, who was uh, participating in it. So it's like, it's just... I don't feel bad for him in the sense, but it's like, it's like, oof, it's like, it kind of sucks that he, like, you get blamed for everything when everybody else is going along with it as well. Oh, absolutely. He should not have gotten all the blame. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, I'm sorry, I thought of this and I have to say it. So you mentioned uh, heckling refs and my all time favorite ref heckle that I've ever witnessed was, I think it was a basketball game in college or something like that. And there was a a foul called that someone near me didn't like. And he shouted, go back to Fuddruckers. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but like, I I get it. It's like, go back to Fuddruckers. That's a place where a a schmuck would go. So... (laughs)
That's where the rest should have been. Yeah, no, that was good. Go back to Fuddruckers. My favorite thing I've heard yelled at a sporting event is uh, at William and Mary. I went to a football game and the school we were playing against, the team was the Blue Hens. Delaware. And somebody yelled, there's no such thing as a Blue Hen. <laughs> oh, man. It, I went to a lot of college sporting events as a band member and I, I heard many things. And it's the absurd ones that always like that's stuck in my brain. So the go. Go back to Fuddruckers, and another one is, this one isn't absurd, but using it as an insult is absurd. So there's one school called Longwood, and Longwood's campus is located in Farmville, Virginia. But also Farmville is like a Facebook game. A browser game, yeah. At, at least it was at the time. And it was a women's basketball game, so like not as much noise as a men's basketball game. And it got really quiet. It was like a in-between plays or like a foul shot or something. And this one guy shouted really loud, you're from Farmville. <laughs> it's like, oh, it got owned. He said the name of their town. But it, I was with him. It did feel like an insult. And it, it threw him off the game. It threw the, the other team off a little bit. <laughs> Probably more so just having a guy shouting, not just saying what town you're from. Yeah. Wow. Uh, back on the topic, this teacher, um, what struck me about him was just the academic rigor of Japanese schooling, which is not really a surprise. I mean, it's the stereotype, but he was like teaching them everything and at a higher level, definitely, than you would get in American sixth grade. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Just a couple more things about like the classroom. First of all, it's... Uh, I feel like this would never happen in an American school from the perspective of they just drop a, like, uh, a kid with a, a deaf child into a regular elementary school class and expect everybody to just deal with it. I feel like there would be a lot more accommodation. That's my expectation, at least, in American schools. And I think it's pretty clear. Like It's interesting because at the start, you see that the kids are pretty accommodating for the most part. They like try to help her out and stuff like that. But eventually, they don't really know how to interact with her. And I don't know. It's you don't want to be sympathetic for the bullies, but like, it's like one of those things where I kind of see, I can at least sort of uh, understand their perspective. This girl is sort of integrated without any help there. And it's like, they don't really know how to interact with her, but she wants to interact with them. It's like, it's hard, I think. Um, and then obviously Ishida gets blamed for everything, which I don't think is particularly fair, but at the same time, you know, and kind of deserved it. Pretty complex issue, I think. But then we flash forward to their high school years. And I don't know what age they were supposed to be. Last year of high school, so 17, 18. So it felt more like college in some ways. Like they're very independent, but um, they're in different schools. So I guess Shoko goes to like a deaf focused school or maybe it's just a girl's school. I don't know. And then Shoya goes to a, a different school too. But this is kind of where we had that flash forward. It's about this time. And we see that uh, Shoya is he's really lonely and he's depressed. The stigma of being a bully and being a weirdo has stuck with him. And uh, we see that he's when he's I think this is like right around the moment that the flashback happens. So it like comes back to where the flashback was or sorry, where the 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 prologue was before we did the flashback. I mean, right, right. And he's like he decides that part of what he's going to do before he kills himself, I guess, is make some amends or maybe I don't it's not wasn't clear to me if he's not going to kill himself anymore if this was like 
something he was doing in between while he, or he wasn't sure what he was going to do, but he's he's going to start trying to mend some some bridges that he had burned, rebuild some bridges. Yeah, he he had saved up a bunch of money to pay his mom back for the hearing aids um, that she had because because when they were kids, she had to pay for all of the hearing aids because he got blamed for all of it, which was like the the equivalent money. I think was about eleven thousand dollars was what he had to pay. Yeah, I think they said 1.7 million yen, and I did a an exchange rate. It said like 13,000. At wow. that time, it would have been closer to 15 or 16,000, but yeah. So he was saving up everything. He sold all of his possessions. And especially that one scene where the two moms are talking, and then it cuts to his mom, who got slapped in the face so hard her earring got torn out. Uh, that was... Uh, a lot of, like, striking... Like, the I think the first 30 minutes is very hard to watch, but it might be my favorite part of the movie just because there's so much like like the fight between uh, Shoko and uh, Shoya in the classroom when they're like over his desk and she's like, I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah. And he's like, what are you doing at my desk? Anyway, there's a lot of stuff that's uh, uh, intense. But yeah, in the future, he's trying to he was trying to make the money back to his mom and then he was going to kill himself. Okay. And then obviously she confronts him about it. So he goes and finds Shoko and returns a, a notebook I don't I think it's the one that he stole years ago or something. He like threw it in the water and then had to dig it out. Gotcha. Yeah, he when he got thrown in the water, he found it in there and he's like, "Why is it what's this doing here?" And then I guess he kept it and he was uh and he decided when he was 5 years later to give it back to her. But when he he finds her again, they kind of have this instant connection with each other and he he if it was not already put off, he puts off his planned suicide for a bit, kind of on that impulse. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he is kind of slightly re-engaging with life and kind of doing some kind deeds and opening up a little bit, just in very small ways, he realizes that like all these other people are kind of suffering too and and are are isolated in their own ways. And one of them is this comic relief character who he just looked different than the other. He looked like a kind of, I would think of like an old dragon ball type character or something. Yeah. Like from a different show. Yeah. Shortened, shortened tubby. And I think his name was Tomohiro and he kind of hangs around as comic relief. And then another one is this girl that we learned to be, um, Shoko's sister named Yuzura. Yuzuru. Yeah. Yuzuru. And this brings me to another comment I had beyond the names confusing me is everybody looks androgynous. So I did not always know who was a boy or a girl at first. And I actually had to look at Wikipedia for a user to see whether it was supposed to be a brother or sister or what. But they play that up that she is wearing the boy's uniform oh, when they okay. meet. I could tell it was a, a female voice actress, but then he, they address each other like Yuzuru is a boy in fact, the assumption is that Yuzuru, because Yuzuru is being so protective of Shoko, must be Shoko's boyfriend. Like, that's the discussion. I see. Right. She 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 introduces herself as uh, Shoko's boyfriend, I guess, to ward off Ishida or something like that. OK. And then right. uh, but then later on, she reveals that she is, in fact, Shoko's younger sister, not uh, her boyfriend. Okay, I didn't follow that conversation at first. One thing I'll also say is, like, when we do this flash forward, so he starts out really isolated, this being Shoya, 
And then he like meets a whole bunch of people, some of whom we were supposed to recognize from the elementary school days and some of whom we don't. And like also supposed to remember what their relationships had been. So like I was kind of thrown for a loop trying to like, do we know who this is? Wait, what is he talking about a boyfriend? What's going on here? So I wasn't, didn't quite have my bearings on what was going on, but I'm glad to know that me not knowing whether this character was a boy or a girl was not just my own incompetence. That was like by design. Yeah, that was definitely a part of it. And then by the end of the movie, she's wearing the girl's uniform. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, she wears it too. For for Japanese people, school uniform for children is kind of a formal thing. So uh, that's why she has it on when uh, they go to the funeral. Right. And so he spends a little, Shoya spends a little more time with Shoko and some of these other people. And at one point, Shoko tries to confess romantic feelings to Shoya to reciprocate what because we kind of have Shoya's perspective. We know that he's feeling these things. And she does it in a way where she tries to say it out loud. And he doesn't understand because, you know, she's deaf and so she can't say things clearly. And he thinks that she's talking about the moon. Yeah. Do you want me to explain this? Yes, sure. So there, this is multiple levels. First of all, the, uh, the Japanese word for like or like fondness is suki, S-U-K-I. And the Japanese word for moon is tsuki, T-S-U-K-I. So they are very uh, similar sounding. Yeah, a lot more similar than in English. She's trying to say she likes him, and he's like, oh, what, the moon? But there's another layer to this, which if you have a familiar with Japanese literature, you would know. The most famous Japanese novelist is a guy named Natsume Soseki. And he once said, basically because of the indirectness of Japanese culture and language, he said, to say I love you in Japanese is to say, which means the moon is beautiful, isn't it? Because it's like a, it's just, it's like an indirect way of like, you're commenting on, uh, I don't know. It's some comment about the indirectness of Japanese uh, language and stuff like that. Mm. So the mu- it's like a, a meme or a reference. The moon is beautiful, isn't it? Is like a goofy way of saying I love you. So there's the, no- the other layer where that is a kind of a reference to the Natsume Soseki saying. That's really interesting. That scene, I think, is really striking because she is trying to say it out loud, which I think is a pretty, um, it's a good insight into her character because you don't get a lot of her stuff voiced. But when you see when she's trying to be earnest or honest, she wants to be like, uh, essentially like uh, normal, which is obviously not a great way of saying it. But yeah, she wants to be like everybody else because you get the whole, uh, do I sound weird when I talk? And he's like, yeah, you do. Which I was like, ah, not probably not pretty, the, pretty bold face to just, yeah. Yep. Not the, not, not the best thing to say there. <laughs> what that made me think of is I've watched a clip of Helen Keller addressing an audience. And she says, now I know my voice sounds weird. And it's like, well, how do you know that, Helen Keller? <laughs> it's because somebody told you that. <laughs> Who was the jackass who went to Helen Keller and said, you know what, Helen Keller? You suck at talking. Your voice sounds weird. <laughs> you sound, you just sound weird, Helen. <laughs> but yeah, there's also the hair change thing, which is they kind of go over it in the movie, but it's like a it's a cultural thing where women change their hair. The the classic mm. one is girls cut their hair when they their heart gets broken. So when I shaved my head, I went to school and they're like, "Did your heart get broken, Will?" And I was like, "No, I just shaved my head." Uh, but yeah. Because that's what weird uncles do in their 20s. Exactly. You get to your late 20s and you decide it's time to shave your head. Well, all that context helps out a little bit because one thing that really struck me about this middle act is that 
people just ain't saying what they feeling. And that was the source of the conflict to say your damn feelings to the person that you're spending all this time with. It's like, it's not like they don't have means to communicate with each other, but I don't know. It's like, uh, it's the Seinfeld issue. Just say the thing that resolves the conflict, you know? So one thing I think is really critical to the narrative, and I think it's kind of the whole crux of it is whether Ishida Shoya is justified in his wanting to reconnect with Shoko, because I think there's this, there's this reservation of whether he deserves it. And that's why Yuzuru at the beginning is like, just, you know, leave her alone or whatever. It's like, you've already done enough. Whereas it's like, and he's like, I don't know. It like, am I allowed to be friends with her? Am I allowed to go back after, you know, all of the uh, difficulty I caused during the past? He, at one point he says like the, the sins of the past are his cross to bear, which is a pretty, you know, pretentious way of saying it, but more or less like, uh, does he, uh, does he deserve this sort of second chance at being friends with her despite uh, being a bully in the past? And I think that heavily weighs on, uh, at least his mind with so when you have all of this like him trying to be insistently nice with not really addressing his feelings and stuff like that uh, i think it's a pretty uh significant point of his internal conflict at least where she is like i just want everything to be normal so there's this sort of conflict where he is burdened by the past but she's like oh, i just want you know to be uh, in a normal social situation so it's right well i think also the the element of communication is like at breakdown of communication, I guess, is literalized by the fact that she cannot hear. So it's like taking this theme and making it actually the crux of the plot. And you actually kind of see that play out in later in the, towards this middle portion when some of the characters are reuniting from the elementary school days and they're like arguing with each other. But she can't actually follow what's going on, even though like she's also the one who wants to be like, direct and forward with her feelings. So it's like this, it is this kind of little uh, riddle wrapped in an enigma of uh, dynamics here going on. Right. And something we haven't said yet is, so Shoya, the guy, has over the years plunged into this isolation. And the way that's represented is that when he looks out at a crowd of people, they all have their faces X'd out. And so when he decides that he's going to make this redemption quest, like his, it, it was a little like the show, My Name is Earl. It's like, before everything is over, I got to, you know, redress all the grievances that people might have against me. And like each time he's able to reestablish a connection, the X drops away. And so it's almost like a like a tournament type show, like he's climbing the <laughs> rankings and like each each rival, it's it's a friendship he needs to form. He's got to reestablish this connection. The X goes away and now there's a new like rung on the ladder. There's a new branch on the the hierarchy that he's climbing. And I found that really engaging. Well, it's almost the reverse of it, because instead of like taking someone down and they're not in the picture anymore. It's like, oh, wait, no, now they're actually bring them in. Uh oh, my network's getting more connected. Right. Yeah. And then when they go to the theme park, when he so he basically he's with the one of the girls who he sat with and she tries to reconnect him with his old friends who started bullying him after uh, he bullied Shoko. But then when that reconnection fails, the exes get glued back to their faces because he right. closes himself off again. I didn't like that part. That felt to me like in the rom-com where you got to throw a monkey wrench into the works two thirds of the way. It's like just this is the time that something needs to happen that suddenly there's a setback. 
it's like, oh, he was doing so good. Why did just keep just keep going? Yeah, I mean, I guess when bringing these characters back in, like, kind of what you're trying to parse out here, like thematically, I guess, because I was kind of with you. Like, I didn't really care much about these side characters and like whether they were mad at him or like, oh. He's trying to be friends with them, but they don't care. It's like, I don't know. I like, I guess maybe now that I'm in my thirties, it's like, I don't feel any guilt about not keeping up with the people in high school. It's like, I have the, the 12 people from high school that I still care about and I keep up with the 12 of them, but like everyone else, I don't, I'm like, Oh, Hey, what's up? It's like, I, I don't care about individual, like random connections. And, and so I wasn't too immersed. All of this to say is like, I wasn't really feeling, uh, some of the drama, not I, I did like the dynamic between Shoya and Shoko, but I didn't really care much about the other characters except, I guess, the sister of Shoko. Yuzuru, and, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I did kind of understand what it was doing thematically, which is like the ways that we communicate and the ways that our past kind of define us and the way that we connect with each other and like how things aren't kind of a straight line, that there's always like this complex web of like our past and our guilt and that kind of is like an ebb and flow type thing. And so I kind of got it, but yeah, I was with Brian. I was like, let's get to the, it's going to get better. I think by the end, but let's, let's move towards the resolution. Yeah. So for me, I, I guess I, I see what you guys are saying, but I guess, so if, if I think the sort of main thrust of the plot is kind of moving past your mistake and guilt or mistakes and guilt from the past. And uh, so by throwing in somebody who he was close friends with, but then like, uh, kind of rejects this sort of moving forward because if you remember when uh, they get they meet up again, the guy's like, "No, you don't have to try and put us back together or whatever." And at this mm-hmm. point, he's kind of having he's confronting these feelings of like, Am, "Is this allowed? Am I allowed to be friends with these people? Am I allowed to have a a good time going to a theme park with my friends?" And then immediately it's like, "Oh, no, you're not," because you still got this uh guilt or this this guy who still hates you or this uh old stuff still weighing on you, yeah. So I don't know. I see what you guys are saying, but I think because I have one, I'm more familiar with Japanese names and stuff like that. And two, because I, I watched the movie three times now because I watched it once a long time ago and two times in preparation for this. Um, I'm able to jive with the side characters a little bit more. I also want to say this was when I realized I, I would have phoned it in. This was a, ma- a manga, a long running manga, or at least like medium running, because I was like, OK, I feel like this would be like an episode or like a chapter and we would get to reevaluate his relationship with this side character and this side character, each one of those. But then here you kind of have it compressed into, you know, a hundred minutes. Um, actually, was this one over two hours? I can't remember. It's two hours. Yeah. Two, two hours and five minutes before credits. I think so. It was, it was pretty long. Yeah, it was, it was, but yeah, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a little long, but two quick things is I thought it did have the important lesson that, like, not all of your friends are going to like each other. Once you get popular enough and walk in a few different circles, like, certain of your friends are not going to enjoy the company of certain of your other friends, which is an important thing to learn. Um, You know, rare is the time in my life where I've had that many friends, but it it has happened at at one point or another. Um, But the other thing, Dan is I really don't like when people say, like, when high school reunions are coming around, they're like, I speak to all the people from high school that I care about already, which is something I've heard so many times. Uh, I don't know. 
It's just because I'm in a somewhat different situation, I guess. But I am in the place where I need some more connections. I say bring on the connections. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that's just that's that's where I see it from. So I, I related, I thought, a lot to Shoya's quest here. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, so we've talked about how he's isolated. And I think there's several indications that it is a self-imposed isolation. So early mm. on in the movie, there's one time when he's in class and he's sort of verbalizing what he perceives other people to be thinking about him. Like he's always alone or, oh, he's so weird or it's that guy who bullied the girl and whatever. And then at some point, there's like a blimp flying out the window and then people come over and look at the window. And one of the guys is like trying to tap on his desk to get his attention so he can also see the blimp. But he's too engrossed in his uh, self-loathing. So you, you know what the vibe he has is Wirt from Over the Garden Wall. <laughs> A little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's obviously guilt is the big thing where he's like, for him, it's like I he, he's reluctant to consider that he's worthy of uh, making friends. And I think that plays up into all of this uh, sort of uh, relatively forced drama that uh, goes between him and his friend group. So there's kind of a turning point when Shoko and Yuzuru's grandmother dies and Shoya uses this as like the impetus to really start spending more time with them, like to kind of comfort them. But this kind of puts more of a lens into Shoko and he realizes that she's basically as lonely and depressed, I guess, as, as he is. And it's kind of like a mirror into his own feelings too, you know? And so there's this festival, it's of like a big fireworks show and Shoya follows Shoko home and witnesses her basically getting ready to jump off the ledge and kill herself at this point. And so, like, she's kind of plunged into her own despair. I, I guess it's also supposed to be exacerbated by the fact that Shoya hasn't really reciprocated the romantic feelings. I, I disagree with that. I think so. Is that not what it was? No, no, no. I think this is she blames herself because you remember they have the big fight at the bridge. Uh-huh. And uh, all of his friends leave. The thing is, so there's a couple things. First of all, throughout the movie, there's several times where Shoya is talking to someone and then she'll be like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, don't worry, it's nothing. So there's always this perception that there's a sort of barrier between them. And then, so Shoya has friends again. And then they have a big fight at the bridge and he kind of yells at everybody to, you know, screw off or whatever, except for her. And he's like, oh, no, we can just be friends, me and you. And then we get uh, there's the scene where Yuzuru shows him the video from the Ferris wheel. And she in that video, she talks about how she hates herself and stuff like that. And at that point, the, the other girl is like, you're the reason that Shoya doesn't have any friends. So I think this one of the, the big things is she feels very isolated and she blames herself for Shoya's isolation as well. So I don't think the romance really has any like I think if, if it has anything to do with it, it's the barrier of communication, not specifically the lack of a romantic reciprocation it's more of a um she blames herself for his isolation and also she feels like she is a burden on other people because of her uh inability to communicate with people on the level she wants to okay you you made that make more sense yeah yeah that's helpful yeah and that also kind of makes sense because it kind of mirrors when she first arrived there was like i mean we kind of saw that it was mostly a happy class where everyone got along and then she came and then, you know, everybody got in trouble for bullying. And then now Shoya gets isolated and also people are being mean to each other for the first time. Right. So yeah. it's like that brought back to. She definitely because there was the whole thing where she was 
and when they were kids, she was trying so hard to fit in, but there was always this barrier of isolation. And then, and then we see her trying to like clean off his desk because he's getting bullied as a result of, because she hangs around at school for a little bit after he gets ostracized for bullying before she drops out. And then, uh, well, after he's getting bullied, she's the one who's like cleaning off his desk, I guess, because of a like empathy or whatever. So there's this sort of shared isolation that she blames herself for. Right. But so she's, she's gone up to kill herself and as she's jumping, he kind of grabs her and helps her up. But in the process of helping her up, he too, well, not he too, he actually falls down and he, I guess it's water he lands into, but he, he falls himself and he goes into a coma. So we kind of flash forward to him being in the hospital and in the aftermath of, of this event, Shoko is even more socially isolated. I guess like the friends are blaming her even more. Some of the peers in the peer group. It's just, it ju- it's just the black haired girl. Oh, just that one girl at this point. Okay. She was the one who was always like the worst. It's your fault that he doesn't have any friends. She was mean all the time. Actually, she she is at least honest. The one who I really hate is the blonde haired girl. Blonde haired girl, because she just vic- whenever there's any conflict, she just starts to cry and is like, "No, you can't blame me." Like when when so for example, there's the one time when uh, he asks her if she's if she told her friend about the fact that he was a bully in elementary school, and she's like, "What? You would accuse me of spreading lies?" And then and then her friend comes up. She's like, "Listen, this guy was a bully in high school. How dare he? Oh, God, everything she does is the worst in that movie. I really." Do not like the blonde girl. The black haired girl is at least honest. The blonde haired girl has a massive like. No, she's she's pretty. I mean, I guess is it okay to be honest if you're an asshole? It's like I I'd, I'd rather you just be nice. I'd rather an earnest asshole than like a uh, a conniving uh, girl who just like, is like oh don't you can't you can't blame me because remember she did it when she was a kid as well because she was like giggling along with everybody else and then he's like hold on you were kind of going along with the two and she's like i would never do something like that and she starts to cry she does the same thing when she's like 17 or 18 years old it's like i'm fed up with it man own up to your actions don't just deflect endlessly maybe yeah but not to say that black haired girl is uh uh a good person it's just like i just personally i don't vibe with the blonde haired girl whose name is Kawaii okay. as much but uh we we at some point get a vision of what shoya is seeing in his coma and it's a vision of Shoko, and I guess she's like saying goodbye to him or something. So I I was wondering if this was supposed to be him like deciding whether or not he was going to die or something like that in his coma. But then he wakes up and when he wakes up, he knows exactly where to run. It's this bridge where they've encountered each other. They had a fight there, all this stuff. And he runs there. He like tears out the uh, the medical equipment from his coma and runs there. And he gets there just as she's having a breakdown and comforts her and uh they reconnect and uh Shoya reluctantly returns back to school and he still has like this anxiety about interacting with all these people and no will what will they think of him does he actually want to spend time with these people who are kind of flaky and inconsistent and also just the the tension i guess of having more people in your life than more people to care about and who care about you and stuff. But he finds people, at least some people are like very warm to him and glad that he's alive. And so now this is like obviously echoing his own suicidal tendencies. Cause in this case it wasn't on purpose, but it's kind of seeing like what the loss of him would impact it would have on the world. I think 
to some extent. And then he decides to invite them all to a festival. He's like, decides that he's going to lean into it. And at this festival, he finally finds some peace in like being connected with the world around him. And the exes, which had been on like these crowds, all of the exes fall off at once, I guess, acknowledging that he has kind of overcome this hurdle of the self-imposed isolation of the kind of the state of depression he's kind of getting over. Right. The world's open to him. It's his oyster. Yeah. The sound comes in as well, because early in the movie, we get this sort of thing where he puts his hands over his ear to block out all mm. of the uh, external sound. But then when all the X's fall out, you suddenly get the background noise of all the other conversation uh, going on in the background. Oh, that's interesting, because that also then plays in with her being deaf, too. Right. Clever. But then you get the, the title tag that you were like, the shape of voice. What is this? Uh <laughs> So the, the Japanese name is Koi no Katachi, and Katachi means shape. So if you literally translate it, it would be the shape of voice. But the English localized name is a silent voice. I think that was a good decision. Yeah, the shape of voice is kind of odd. It's like, that doesn't really work. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean Gotta anything. Fine tune it a little bit. The shape of a voice might be better. Okay. Or the form of a voice might yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the sh- just the shape of voice is a little bit odd. <laughs> Do you can't? <laughs> Shape of voice? Most popular voice? So I was up and down this on this one as, as it went along. There was stuff that really worked for me, stuff that I just felt totally removed from, and I think a lot of it was cultural, but it's like, I don't know. It's Some of the drama didn't feel, maybe not authentic, but it just didn't quite register with me, I guess. Some of it did, though, and I, I actually liked a lot of the character development, and I could tell it was doing some pretty rich stuff with uh, the ways the characters related with each other and kind of like the, the parallels with each other and stuff. Also, just good use of animation. I mean, um, it, overall evocative, some really some really great framing and um, some it like designed POV shots, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was cool. Yeah, like when he's staring at the ground. Some of the animation, I didn't know how they did it. It was like two and a half dimensional stuff. It was like kind of cool. It made me think of actually of Anne of Green Gables, Brian, where we had we talked about how it made it look like it had a sense of depth and space. And I thought this did a lot of that. And that that looked pretty nice. Um, Also, some cool motifs, like a lot of like looking down and looking at each other's legs was one I noticed a lot. And it was like kind of a way of like disengaging from the world and I could just tell that this was put together by someone who really kind of knew how they wanted to put this movie together, even if all of it didn't click for me. So, And I just thought it was a little too long, and there were parts of it that that dragged. And the beginning, like you said, Will, is hard to get through because... It's pretty it's rough. Just, it's like they're just brutalizing this uh, deaf little girl. It's just yeah, like, like literally drawing blood at one point. That was... I don't, I don't like ear injuries. When 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 uh, he tears out the hearing aid and it like it, it tears her skin and she gets a scar and then you also get the one where the mom gets slapped in the face so hard her earring gets torn out and she's like bleeding down the side of her head. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, not all fuzzy warmth. Those were some of my thoughts, but Will, it sounds like you're pretty high on this one. So what are some of the things you liked about it that you might not have said yet? Yeah, so you. Um, you didn't mention the sound design, so I love the, the music in this is really great, and there's like a lot of striking like sounds fading in and fading out, and a lot of like the musical cue. The, at the last scene where he's like weeping when all of the 
X's fall away. You get a pretty uh, intense musical cue that's really great. And so there's, I think there's a lot of good use of sound throughout, which is fitting for a movie where one of the like one of the central themes is communication between a deaf person and a uh, someone with hearing. Um, Voice and its shape. Yeah. Some of the motifs you mentioned, like looking down at people's legs, that's also important because how do they, they communicate with sign language. So if you're looking at somebody in the legs, you can't uh, understand mm. what they're saying with their hands. And there's also, yeah. there's so many times where it's like, it, it's obviously very intentional about what she can and can't hear. And I think it, uh, there's so much detail there, there, there that uh, I think it's, I, I really appreciate at times when it's like, there's a conversation happening and, and then she doesn't know what they're saying. She says, what are you saying? And then he like brushes her off. And I think it, uh, if you're paying attention, it gives a lot of insight into what she's thinking and stuff like that. But obviously it is an adaptation of, I think it's actually a very faithful adaptation. They cut out a couple of things. Like there's a framing device where the the group of friends is making a movie together in the, hmm. like a, like a, like a, they're going to submit it to a local film competition because the, the comic relief character, Nagatsuki, he wants to uh, submit a movie. So they all make it together. And then at the end, so they, after the hospital, they come together to finish the movie, not just chill at the festival. And I actually think it's a pretty complex narrative. I think there's a lot to think about. Like a, hmm. obviously Ishida is framed as the protagonist, but I think the the movie is somewhat agnostic as to whether what he's doing is justified or not. Like there's so many things where you say, if you're just doing this to make yourself feel better, then you know leave. Or whether he's like, do I really deserve this? And it's like, and I think the, in general, the movie's conclusion is like, well, who knows? But at some point, you have to move on. Um, you right. can't, you can't just shut out the world and be consumed by your guilt the whole time. Um, yeah. plus the animation is brilliant. I really like a lot of the side characters, like both the moms, I think are really interesting and the way they talk to each other. And there's like, like, um, it's just, it's just very, uh, emotional, obviously. Like there's something to be said about like the, that period at the end of high school, early adulthood, where it's like, it's sort of a rapid development. Right. Yeah, so a lot of I think a lot of rich emotional themes. Obviously, it's visually very beautiful, um, and I like I said I praise the audio design as well. So I'm a pretty big fan of it. There's I can nitpick some things, but generally, like I I, I think it's uh, honestly the first thirty minutes as itself works as like a a short in in its own. Just this sort of uh, she gets bullied and then you get it mirrored with his bullying because that was the originally so the manga before it was the manga was a one shot which is a long single chapter. And that long single chapter was just the childhood portion. And then it was later mm. adapted into a fuller thing. Anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fond of it. What do you think, Brian? I thought it did a good job giving a lot of the characters arcs and a sense of interiority. Like they had things that they wanted. They had unique personalities. Um, it, it felt uh, kind of soap opera-y in that regard. Like they you, we would come back to that character a little later and they their like their want would have driven them a little further in one direction or the other um yeah a lot of emotions in this one um we're not rating yet i don't think but i ended up liking this one quite a bit cool yeah so that was not the shape of voice but a silent voice Join us for part two, where we discuss The House of Small Cubes, a 2008 short film, and the 2009 feature film, Red Line. We also give the films an Is It Good rating in part two of this anime sampler platter. (laughs) 